Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development, software testing, and Python. I'm your host, Brian Hawkins, and on this episode, we talk to Kelsey Hightower. Kelsey is an amazing public speaker. I first heard him speak during his 2017 PyCon keynote. I then got to meet him during a Portland Tech Crawl event later that year, and he mentioned that he had some views about testing that he'd like to discuss on the podcast. So here we are. We do discuss testing, and testing of big, hairy, complicated systems like distributed systems. But I also wanted to start with some questions to let you and I get to know Kelsey Hightower. So that's where we start. It's a wonderful interview, and I'm sure you'll learn a lot. But first, I'm very happy to say that this episode is sponsored by JetBrains and PyCharm. Of course I had heard of PyCharm, but I hadn't tried it until after I saw a PyCon 2017 presentation about how changes to Python 3.6 allowed the PyCharm team to change their debugger so that it runs almost as fast as not using a debugger. That's incredible. I learned more about it and found out that the PyCharm team is very much focused on improving developers' day-to-day work in so many ways. My team has now switched to PyCharm, and here are a few of the features that save us time. The virtual environment support, highlighting PEP8 violations, code completion, code coverage. The Git integration is incredible, and it's just built in. You don't have to turn it on or anything. It just works, and it's intuitive. Also, the visual diff and merge tools are top-notch and huge time savers. A few of us, including me, are longtime Vim users. The Vim emulation and extremely easy-to-modify keyboard shortcuts made the transition from Vim to PyCharm painless. And even some non-Vim users like the keyboard shortcuts too. And of course, the main reason my team switched to PyCharm, that the PyTest support in PyCharm is awesome and it keeps getting better and better. There's so much more. I don't know which of these features or a long list of others are going to be the features that save you and your team time. But if you value your time, you owe it to yourself to try PyCharm. And guess what? The PyCharm team have set up a special promotion just for testing code listeners. If you use the link testingcode.com slash PyCharm, you can try PyCharm Professional for free for three months. This offer is only good till September 1st, so don't forget. And you know, going to testingcode.com slash PyCharm and trying it out shows the PyCharm team that sponsoring this show is a good idea. So please give it a shot. And now... Let's get to know Kelsey Hightower. Actually, I'm like super excited to have you coming on the show just because I think you're doing a lot of cool things. Awesome. I appreciate it. The first time I even knew you heard your name was uh, one of the keynote sessions last year at PyCon. Oh, yeah. That was, that was my first PyCon in a long time. Yeah, I think it was last year. Yep, it was. Since I didn't know who you were until I saw you, um, other people might not know who you are either. So who is Kelsey Hightower? Oh, I'm just a a regular guy working on infrastructure stuff. So, you know, my background started as a system administrator. So I took that route early in my career, uh, various jobs, financial, web hosting, uh, and then eventually product companies like Puppet Labs, uh, CoreOS, and now at Google. And kind of my job these days is, you know, there's a little bit of building things and a lot of helping people understand what those things are 
and helping seed some of the vision on how those things should be used. And when that doesn't make sense, go back to the drawing board and try to build things to fill those gaps. What do you mean by help people how to use things? Are you um, internal to Google or are you helping Google customers? Yeah, so I think since my first job in a product company, namely Puppet Labs, and I started at Puppet as a developer, so working on the open source configuration management tool known as Puppet, you know, written in Ruby. And during those times, that was my first introduction to like this whole open source community where the things you build are used in a much broader context than you're paying customers, right? You have a whole community of people that are not only using the things that you're working on, but also contributing to them. So, you know, a lot of the times before you're allowed to even touch the keyboard, you need to get community consensus on what the feature should be, what problems you're solving, and in many cases, maybe reviewing someone else's solution uh, to the problem. So when I look at my work these days, it's very similar. I, I work on a project mainly called uh, Kubernetes, which is kind of focused on containers. But these days, it's probably much more than that because people are building new systems on top of Kubernetes. Maybe it's a CI system. Maybe it's a, a network control plane like we see in Istio, which is a service mesh for connecting microservices uh, either in a Kubernetes cluster or even across VMs. So when you start to have a community that big with people with different ideas, you have to listen to them and it kind of takes one to be one, right? So uh, it takes one to know one. So developers that are coming into our community, they're looking to use Kubernetes, you know, as part of the development flow or process, or maybe they're building things directly on top of it. So listening, being a user myself, you start to see where the gaps are. And for example, in Kubernetes, uh, some people find it very difficult to kind of get started, especially like provisioning, let's say, a TLS certificate for their application. So filling the gaps in my case could be either building a tool that integrates things like Let's Encrypt with Kubernetes or helping other people fill those gaps by learning the Kubernetes API or speaking at a conference or even flying on site to a Google customer and whiteboarding with their engineers until they get it. That actually sounds kind of fun. Um, you enjoying the role? Oh, of course. I think I think in many ways, most people building things have the role as well. They just really haven't embraced it. For example, if you're at a company working on products that they sell to their customers, at some point in time, it could be advantageous for you to help out on, let's say, closing a really large deal with the sales team, right? So your sales team is out there trying to convince the world that you should pay for the software that you're building. Right. And this is how you kind of keep your job. And if you like your job, uh, this is kind of keeping that going. Right. It takes paychecks to keep this going. And sometimes it's helpful to jump on those sales calls and be very honest with the customer. Like, Here's what the product does. Here's what it doesn't do. And also, as a person building this thing, I'm listening to you to understand where the gaps are so I can make them better. So in that particular capacity or that particular role, you could consider yourself doing some sales engineering, right? Yeah. If you were to talk about the thing you're building at a conference, right, and you're really passionate about it and saying, hey, I'm working on this product, maybe here's some of the foundational components, maybe here's some of the principles from white papers. In that capacity, you could be seen as an advocate. So I think a lot of people inherently have these roles at different points and times of a project. And for me, I just kind of get to focus on that for full time. So that was, Puppet was one of your first uh, jobs as a programmer? 
Well, I would probably say as a full-time developer. Before that, I worked in the financial services space. So this is the typical enterprise, you know, in some similarities to like the Phoenix Project, right? So, you know, you can't move too fast. Lots of enterprise cultural challenges. But there I wrote a lot of code for like back-end systems, uh, batch jobs, those things, and also kind of let the infrastructure. So before we called it DevOps, you just had people who cared a lot about making the whole thing work. So regardless if your role was primarily ops or development, you did a bit of both and you did what was necessary to kind of move things forward. Yeah. Now, when did uh, speaking at conferences and stuff like that start? Um, so when I was in financial services, I remember um, really looking around the industry and saying, how could I actually be better, right? So you buy all the books, you learn, uh, you know, go buy a book on Python, wrap up on Python. And then eventually I decided, what are these meetups all about? So I remember going to my very first meetup, and that was kind of some of the significance of being able to keynote PyCon, especially a PyCon being chaired by Brandon Rhodes. So he was, we were in Atlanta together at the same time. And my very first meetup that I've ever attended was a meetup at Georgia Tech University. And it was a Python meetup. So I was writing Python at the time at the financial services company. And I decided to go check out this meetup. And I remember watching a few people speak. And I was like, you know, some of the speakers are great. But some were like, wow, if they could do it, I know I could do it. <laughs> so I decided to put together my first meetup talk. It was, uh, I think it was List Comprehensions, Python versus Haskell. And I gave that talk and it felt really natural. I felt really good at it. And I just incorporated that, incorporated that kind of thing into my routine. So whether it's a meetup or a conference, my style remains the same, right? Go and talk about something that I'm working on, that I care about. I have a show, don't tell philosophy. So this is why I love to do the live demos to show people like, look, this is how it works. There's no magic. You can do it too. Um, let's see. I, I talked uh, at PyCon for the first time this, this last weekend, and that was a lot of fun. Congratulations. Thank you. I did not prepare it enough. You brought up that you were watching people that were great at uh, lightning talks, but it also helped you to watch people that weren't that great. Um, nothing against them, but it, it lowers the bar a little bit. And uh, one of the the best feedback I got from my talk was somebody came up to me right afterwards and said, one of the things I loved about your talk was uh, at the end, uh, it didn't go so well. Um, and And I realized you're not on a pedestal above me. You're just just a guy that knows some stuff and you're trying to teach it to us the stuff that you know, but you, you, there's nothing magical about what you're doing. I could probably do this. Um, so I'm glad I fumbled at the end so that, that I could inspire somebody else to try to talking at PyCon. But you're right. That, that is the point. The point isn't for you to show mastery and be the person that everyone looks up to. The point I think for me personally is to inspire someone. So some of the feedback that I love the most is that, Kelsey, I watched your presentation and I decided not necessarily to copy what you're talking about, but I decided to do something better for my team or for myself. And thanks for the inspiration. That's the end game, right? We don't have enough time to change everything in the world. But if you can inspire a few people to either think outside the box or have the courage to say, wow, if you were able to get on stage and do that, so can I. Now, so uh, 
so what are you passionate about right now? Any, uh, any things that you're really itching to try to fix? Society. <laughs> <laughs> so as much as I, I talk about tech, and sometimes I'll also talk about other things on, especially like my social media feed, is I'm a minimalist. Like I'm a minimalist by, by force and by discipline. I'm also a vegetarian by discipline. And in those worlds, I think early on in my life, I decided to get debt-free, maybe 15 15 years ago now, maybe a little longer. And when I got debt-free, I decided I didn't have to show anyone how much money I had. The car I drove didn't matter as long as I liked it. And part of I liked it was figuring out who I was, right? So you grow up your whole life being advertised to buy this, buy that. And you're not quite sure why you like something. Do you like it just because you've seen the ad so many times? Do you like it because it's the symb- the status symbol that it carries? Or do you like it because you generally like it? So I spent, and I still do, a lot of time making sure that I know who I am and I can kind of shift through the signal and the noise and just kind of live a life that way. So I guess I'm a practicing, practicing minimalist, meaning you know, there are things that I could buy, but I choose not to if I really, really don't like it or just don't need it. And for me, that's pretty liberating. And I find it refreshing so that way I can focus on the things I do care about, like my family or the work that I do, right? So if I'm working on a particular thing, my mind is pretty clear where I can dive all the way in and kind of figure out that technology for myself. And hopefully that comes out in my presentation. So that's what I'm passionate about is people figuring out who they are, not necessarily being trapped or sucked away into the hype. And then when people get to talk from the position of who they are, and even if they're covering topics that are currently in the hype cycle, you get this new refreshing set of opinions that's not polluted by how people want them to think or how or what people expect them to say. Wow. I think I see that in your presentations too. You seem to try to boil all of the the decoration off of whatever you're talking about and get down to the exact meat of um, really uh, really what it is that you're trying to talk about. Um, probably not a good phrase. Uh, getting down to the meat of it to use for a vegetarian. So apologies for that. <laughs> I'll take. We'll just consider the meat tofu. Yeah, we'll roll with it. Yeah, well, you're in a good uh, you're in a good city for uh, for vegetarianism and minimalism. Yes, uh, I am. It's like I'm being I'm at home in this region. So, what brought you to Portland? Uh, just something new. I grew up in Long Beach, California, to the age of like 15. Then I moved to Atlanta, where I spent you know the majority of my years, maybe up until 30s, you know, mid 30s, and uh, met my wife. Uh, there and you know had a child there. All my family's there, all of my wife's family's there. So Atlanta will always be home. But this region is really great for me in terms of you know the community base, the technology base. Easy to get to the valley, easy to get to Seattle, and it's a place where I can come and just relax um, and kind of escape everything else. Um, uh, how long were you in, in Atlanta? Oh, I was in Atlanta for at least fifteen. 16 years, right? So from 15 to like 30, 31. Okay. I was only in Atlanta for like an hour as a layover. <laughs> um, is It was hot. Is it is is Atlanta a hot, muggy place normally? Yeah, not just hot, but hot and humid. So a lot of people don't understand this humidity thing. Um, it's just when your clothes stick to you, right? Like you're, you just start sweating. 
Um, and it's really the sticky feeling. But, you know, Atlanta, Atlanta is pretty nice in the fact that it has seasons, right? A lot of people in Portland don't know what that is, right? In Portland, there's like summer and not summer for the most part. And I think in Atlanta, one thing that's nice is you kind of get all of the all of the flavors of what the earth is capable of. Really? Okay. Does, is, does it snow there? Yeah. So in Atlanta, sometimes you'll get snow, super cold. I mean, winter is winter, right? You will have a coat. Um, and then when it's, um, you know, when it's summer, of course, it's a very clear indication of summer. But the fall seasons and, and the spring, all of those things really... I like them. So it's like in Atlanta, when it's when it's springtime, you will see the world covered in pollen, right? So it's very clear and visible when the seasons change in Atlanta. Not that I miss all of that, uh, but it's a very it's a very different thing in Portland. When you know, if you're not really paying attention in Portland, it feels like there are days, few of them, with sun, and then most of the days don't have very much sun, right? So it's kind of a weird mode to be in. Yeah, I love Portland so much that I tell everybody it rains 300 days out of the year. You'd hate it. <laughs> Don't come here. Huh? Don't come here. Uh, no. Um, the uh, I, I think of the rain as a tax that we have to pay for all of the green. Um, oh, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Um, the uh, One of the things, uh, I ran into you um, at a... We did like a tech crawl or something like that last year, I think it was. And you said you had some opinions on software testing. I was wondering if you could share any, if you have any. Yeah, so this is the, I know for some people, this is like religion, right? Like there is a way you're supposed to test. There are things that work. There are books and studies about what works, right? So look, this is not for them, right? I know I'm not going to try to invalidate any of those. I'm not trying to prove any of those. This is me thinking independently. So, and I'm just going to talk about testing in the context of jobs, right? So this is just not theory. This is just kind of like my experience. So I, I, I would guess my biggest, my first introduction to testing for real was at the financial institution, right? So I remember writing a, a set of libraries that were replacing COBOL for software that had to manipulate data on its way to the mainframe. So this is financial services. So when you mess it up, you mess up money. And when you mess up money, that's bad for everybody. So testing in that context is end-to-end testing has to happen. Meaning I wrote my, I remember writing a packed decimal library. So this is like old school stuff, how to arrange bytes in a way that are more efficient for the mainframe's memory layout and parsing old school formats like fixed length fields, EBCDIC. And you need to test that stuff because you have to get it right, but it's not enough to do unit testing, right? So I remember writing a bunch of unit tests because, hey, that's what you do. But then sometimes things will get to the mainframe or the database after being processed by the mainframe, and you start to see issues that, of course, are hard to articulate in unit tests. So at that point in time, I kind of like, hmm, these unit tests are good for certain types of assurances, but not necessarily comfortable enough for me to sleep at night. Having unit tests pass was never enough, especially in the financial sector. You need to test this stuff end-to-end, and sometimes end-to-end means you have to wait until 30 days to run a report to see if the fields are even valid, right? Of course, you can speed that stuff up, and that's where you get to integration testing, where you deliberately take your code and run it all the way through the system 
in a way that doesn't compromise what production would look like. And I found a lot of value in integration testing to the point where if you were going to compromise on testing, which I think a lot of people do, even though they won't say it out loud. Yeah. Some people will write all the unit tests in the world and brag about it. Hey, this project has 100% test coverage or I have seven to one test code. I'm like, congratulations, right? Like, what are you accomplishing with that if it's still broken? So I think if you're going to compromise somewhere, I don't think you can compromise on integration testing. So again, I'm not saying integration tests are better than unit tests. I'm not saying you can skip writing unit tests. What I'm saying is you cannot compromise on integration testing. And, and there's cases where I've chosen to skip the unit test boilerplate in favor of getting the integration test done first. Therefore, if I can't get back to some unit of testing, I didn't fail the end-to-end flow. And that served me well over my career, and especially now, especially when I'm building prototypes, where I find more value in end-to-end testing which usually contribute to documentation, what the flags should look like, what they should feel like versus just a small unit test. So that's been kind of my philosophy um, around testing in general. Just make sure you're testing something that helps you sleep well at night and the people who have to support it. Um, the Now, in your world um, or your definitions, can you t- tell me what the difference again is between system test and integration test? So to me, like an integration test, let's, let's think about Kubernetes, for example. If you're going to do an integration test for Kubernetes, you may want to set up an environment that has the latest bits of code that you're working on and build all the binaries in what you consider a complete system, right? So if you want to do end-to-end integration testing with Kubernetes, then you're going to have to have a real etcd backend that represents what most customers would install provision that whole stack, and then think about what the expected behavior is from the outside. So some people will think about this as like black box testing. I'm going to create a container. I expect it to run like this, and I'm going to have to use the front door into the entire system. In the case of Kubernetes, that would be like the API server, not necessarily Docker, not necessarily some of the other backing components, but I'm going to go through the front door, and then I'm going to observe all the output. So maybe I get the logs from the container. Maybe I get the logs from some of the runtimes or maybe some of the metrics from the Kubernetes API. And the goal is, does the system work as expected when given a set of inputs, containers or Kubernetes manifest? And do I get the desired results? And that allows me to test all the components, the DNS server that's hidden away, the scheduler, all these other components that you don't typically talk about. Now, when I talk about unit testing, that's where you say, hey, I'm working on the API server, and I just added or modified an API endpoint. And what you typically do is, at least in my case, what I used to do, is you typically make the test work. (laughs) Like, you've changed this bit of code, you've modified a field or two, and then you go adjust the test until they work. (laughs) That, that's what most people do, whether they'll say it out loud or not, or say you're not supposed to do it that way. Yeah. That's what most people do. And once it's all green, they check it in. And then as bugs come up, if you're disciplined, you'll write a new test to replicate the bug. And then you go and fix the code until that test no longer breaks. But I know what it's like in real life. 
if another test breaks, you will massage it until it works. So and, um, just uh, uh, I'm still a little confused. The the uh, integration test is on a on a system that uh, replic replicates uh, the real world system, but like at a local scale or something. Honestly, it could be the real world system itself. Okay. So if I know that Kubernetes is going to deploy it into, let's say, Google Cloud Platform, then I'm going to install it on some VMs. I'm going to put etcd there because guess what? The networking matters. The firewall rules matter. Yeah. All of those things that we don't think about matter. So if you change the API server in a weird way, and now you're no longer listening on port 6443 by default, you did something, now it's on 8080, it breaks. And that's something typically that you may not catch in a unit test when you're thinking about server configuration. Yeah, testing at that level. Um, it helps you with trying to find out which which parts are hard. Are any of the workflows just weird? Are the any flags that just don't make sense um, for what people are really using it for? And uh, which documentation holes are there? Do you, are there some white papers or tutorial docs that need to be written to make this more clear? Uh, and that's a that's a benefit from doing that level of testing that you don't get from unit tests. Exactly. And I think that's what makes a complete engineer, right? You're, you're engineering a complete solution. And to me, I, these days when I write code, I like to start with like, how would I actually call this? What did the flags feel like? What are their names? Do they make sense? And then I like to write these end-to-end -end tutorials where if I were starting from scratch, what binary am I downloading? What's the name of that binary? If I were to invoke it, what does the help output look like? Is it helpful? Right? And then what steps does it take to do the actual task that I want people to do? And once I write it all out, I was like, wow, this code needs to change. There's no way I should have a config file slurp in an XML file when YAML seems much easier for humans to grok. So I think if you want to be a complete engineer, you have to think about the entire end-to-end -end flow from a new user's perspective. Yeah, and I love that. I love that idea of like getting it down to not some, not just writing the test, but write a tutorial on trying to teach somebody how to do that. And uh, even if you never publish it, like this is this is terrible to describe. We, <laughs> this is embarrassing. We can't publish this. Uh, we need to fix the API. I like it. Yeah, I think that's what people want to do. So all the hats that we think, or sometimes we may take for granted. The documentation team, I love them like the most in the world. The QA teams, all these disciplines, I think we need them. But I also think as a developer, you should try to learn as many of those disciplines as possible to make you a much well-rounded person. So when you deliver or check in that code, check it in with docs. Check it in with some UX improvements. Check it in with all those things that you expect the other experts to find. And maybe you make their job a little bit easier or you allow them to be truly experts and really focus on the things that aren't so obvious. I'm a top-down system-level test kind of person because I'm not against unit tests, but if you have to make a trade-off, uh, I go for tests that uh, reflect the user interaction. Because you know what? Every company has them, right? You have them when you go do that deployment and everyone crossing their fingers and they run that smoke test script just to make sure that it actually works this time. They're there. They're just not really intentional. <laughs> so they're brittle. All we're saying is let's just formalize that stuff and make it a part of the engineering culture. Then I think you start to get the values from having those things in the first place. Definitely. And, you know, for a while I was um, 
I, I just didn't like the entire idea of uh, people just doing testing or just doing QA because I thought that should all be engineering roles. Uh, but the more people I meet, there are definitely some developers that can do like an end-to-end test that's um, just the happy path stuff. But there is a mindset of somebody that's able to to come up with corner cases and and uh, and really stress the system that um, that that's a skill in itself, and those are valuable as well. Also, focus, right? We always underestimate focus, and I think if you're using these roles to define focus areas, that's where the power comes from. So if you took an engineer and say, "Hey, I know you can do the engineering work and some of the testing work." But what if I told you you can just focus on the testing work? And typically, we associate focus with titles. But it's that focus, that zero laser focus on this is my job. And then you start to go beyond the basics, right? And I think you're alluding to that, meaning we're going to test the syscalls coming out of this app to see if those syscalls are appropriate from a security perspective, right? And I think that's what we need more of in the industry is people helping out so that way the baseline is covered. And then the people with focus and expertise can really leverage that stuff, not to write the basic stuff. And then also taking a look at error messages and when things go wrong, what does it look like to the user? And is it possible for them to know how to fix it? I once saw a quote that the best user documentation is a great error message. Mm, I'm feeling that. And actually, I've seen some great error messages where there's a link to a you know FAQ. Like, hey, if you're seeing this, click here or copy and paste it and put it in your browser and it takes you to a common suggestion of fixes. Like that's like, that's, that's amazing. That's great. Um, because you can't, you can't put like five pages of, uh, of tutorial in a little help dialogue. Oh, you can. People call them stack traces. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, they tell you about the whole world in the log message. It's just like, why are you telling me about the number of threads right now? I just want to know why you can't open this file. And I think that's where you start to come out with this old world where people don't understand what they're communicating via their errors. They're just like error.log and whatever happens, happens. Man, I'm I'm only looking at the first two inches of the of the error anyway. So <laughs> I'm glad you measured it that way, because I think that's how humans think, right? If you scroll up and you see more than an inch or two of logs, you're like, you know what? That's it. This person obviously doesn't know. <laughs> where I should be looking because after about an inch or so, it's just a lot, a lot of land uh, beyond that. And I hope one day that that all progresses towards, like, you know, when you get in your car and the gas light comes on or some other light comes on that says, hey, here's exactly what's wrong. And I'm pretty sure there's tons of data being generated to make that light go off, but almost to the point where you can point someone in the right direction. It's not perfect. But I wish we just had a little more of these indicators, maybe logging makes UX or something like that. It's interesting when I, the more I talk to people that work with uh, uh, networked systems, how we've got multiple multiple computers on multiple operating systems talking with each other over, uh, over transmission lines that have latency. And you can't predict what's going to happen and how people are going to use it. So sometimes it isn't like exactly what's wrong, but Exactly what was the user trying to do uh, when things went awry? And they might not even know because they're not, you know, it's it's an automated system or something. Well, the, the patterns that I like now that are arising is to assume that it's always broken. Right? Like <laughs> you have a distributed system 
you should just be under the assumption that it's always broken. Some some MTU setting isn't right. Some amount of latency that shouldn't be there is there. There is some thread that's stuck. You just need to assume that something is broken. And what that has manifested to is this chaos engineering community, right? Yeah. Or some people would say testing in production. But the idea is that if you assume that it's always broken, injecting a certain level of brokenness on purpose and just observing the system always helps you really build resilient software where you say, hey, team, we're just going to make certain services return 403s randomly, and we don't think the system should be paralyzed or degrade too far below this line in order for us to consider it resilient. And you know what? We're going to also throw in maybe some other errors that are random, like 10-second delays here and there just to see how the system behaves. If you get into a culture of, of a very hostile environment, then you have no choice but to just assume the worst in all of your interactions between services, and your code starts to reflect that. So if that's just what you're doing by standard, then you just have a reliable system because you just assume that it isn't. The Netflix team has been um, uh, very vocal about uh, that kind of testing. Um, I assume they're not the only people doing things like that. There's people all over uh, doing this kind of testing. Yeah, cloud providers, anyone that's responsible for these large systems that on the happy path, they're great, but when they break, it's 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 just like unsolved you know murder mystery and i think most people are just unhappy trying to respond to those in real time like you see people have an outage like if a cloud provider has an outage in a certain region the entire world lights up and says oh my god region xyz is down what are we going to do and imagine the pressure on the team trying to resolve that issue so without constant practice it will be a nightmare to have to face that challenge when it pops up. Yeah. And also like one of the neat things about that is to, to be, if you know exactly where the problem is, cause you're the one that put it there, then you can, um, like we were talking about good error messages, you can, um, hopefully build in systems that will point you to the right direction instead of pointing you completely in the wrong direction. Right. Yeah, in a, an entire service like, say, Netflix or Azure or something, you can't just say, well, there's like 5% of the people are having problems. Let's just turn it off and turn it back on again. No, that doesn't work. <laughs> you, can't, you can't reboot the cloud, folks. Like, <laughs> there is no single button, right? These systems are incredibly complex. Uh, yeah, that ain't going to work. Hey, one of the things I realized I forgot to ask you about is you wrote a book on Kubernetes, didn't you? Yeah, so I started a book called Kubernetes the Hard Way, and I was joined by two co-authors, Brendan Burns and, oh, wow, I'm a fit, Joe Beta. So Joe Beta and Brendan Burns were two or part of two of the original founders. So they weren't the only ones, but uh, they were at Google when Kubernetes was created, and they're largely responsible for a lot of its initial design. And we put out this book called Kubernetes Up and Running. And if you notice the book, it follows my my typical style that you see on GitHub, which is lots of code examples in their full length. And the idea is that you would like either copy and paste or type the commands out and really see what the output should look like. And I think a lot of people learn well that way with the whole let me run it myself and observe the output and observe the whole flow. Yeah. Well, um, I, how how was that experience? Would you write another book? I would write another book and stop at 100 pages. 
because when I started writing Kubernetes up and running, I didn't have any co-authors. And I maybe got into about 120 pages. I think the final book is almost 200 pages. And Brendan Burns, especially Brendan Burns, he added a lot of good context. So if I were to write a book longer than 100 pages, I think having co-authors is good because you can get fatigued. Like writing anything is hard. Writing a book is almost impossible or it feels that way. So I think in the future, I'm thinking about writing another book called Kubernetes the Hard Way based off of the popular GitHub repository that I have. And I just want to keep it at a solid 100 pages where you, you know you get rid of the cruft, you focus on a particular set of subjects, and then you force yourself to have to go refactor until everything is concise and what it needs to be, and then just lock it down at 100 pages. It's kind of like giving a keynote where you only get 20 minutes, right? You got to get all the right bits in there because you don't get 45 minutes to, to say the same thing. And if you're good at it, uh, I think it actually turns out to be a better product. Okay. I think those are, that's a great idea. I, uh, um, I'd like to see a lot, a lot more smaller books. I'm I'm tired of seeing tech books get bigger and bigger. Um, I think yeah, because then it's like some content is obviously filler, yeah. right? You're like, ah, I don't need this filler right now. I don't need you to print the standard library in the back, right? Like, there's a time and place for that. But I think what you really want is almost some opinions from the author. Like, do not just copy and paste from a website. Like, give me your insight, hopefully through experience, that will then save me maybe a year or two just because I read your book. I think that's what people are looking for from tech books these days, given that we have the internet. Yeah. When I, um, so after I, uh, the book I was, I wrote on PyTest, um, I sent out the first four chapters we, to a whole bunch of tech, um, uh, collaborators and, uh, and some of the feedback, um, I got was, um, don't tell me like the three ways I could do it. I, I want you to tell I mean, you maybe you can list those, but I really want to tell you to tell me what do you think I should do? Tell me the right way, according to you. Um, it's your book. I, I want to I want to know what you think. So yeah, the, the same holds true for conference talks. If you go up and you just state the facts, you know, even if you do a good job, people probably won't remember that too much. But if you go out and say, look, I know that there's all these ways of doing it here's how I do it and here's why. And there's just so much engagement you get, whether people agree or disagree with you. And that what makes you a memorable speaker is because people got to know a little bit about you and got your opinion on some subject they care about. Yeah. Nice. That's good advice, man. It's so fun to, to BS with you. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up, but is there any, uh, any final message or, or call to action you want to give people? Uh, I guess if we had a call to action, I would just ask people to really focus on the principles of things that they're doing, right? So for example, uh, you can say I'm a Python programmer, and then the foundation there and the principles would be I'm a person who can write computer programs using specific syntax that we typically type into text editors. And if you focus on that principle, then when it comes time to learn a new language, you don't, you don't start saying, well, it, it isn't Python or it doesn't work exactly like Python, but I can learn it because guess what? I'm going to type in some syntax into an editor and it's going to either build something or run on some VM and it will work, right? So then you can actually pick up languages and treat them like tools. 
The same is for everything else like CICD, event-driven programming. All of these things are rooted in some foundation or principles, but sometimes I think people get too caught up in a particular product or packaging of those ideas or principles. And in the worst cases, people don't learn the principles. So they believe that without a particular product, they're unable to leverage those particular principles, even in their existing tools, which is, I think, a large miss by the industry. And it creates this sort of tribalism and versus battles that are just unhelpful, given the fact that most people would better themselves if they focused on the foundational bits. Yeah, I think that's great. That's great advice. Um, well, it was great talking to you, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you for having me. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, you only have a short time to go to testandcode.com slash PyCharm and get your extended three-month trial of PyCharm Professional just for testing code listeners. Show notes are at testandcode.com, and transcripts are posted as they are completed. Also, thank you to Patreon supporters, especially $5 level supporters, Steve Holden, Evan, Andrew Diedrich, Jordan Rink, Stephen Oates, and Oliver Bestwalter. Help support the show and get an on-air thank you like that by going to testandco.com and clicking donate. Now go out and test something. <laughs>